Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine an event in the Royal Australian Navy's history. The Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales is supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. In the previous two episodes, we discussed the tragic collision between the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne and HMAS Voyager. In this episode, we shall discuss the second fatal collision involving HMAS Melbourne, which was with the US destroyer USS Frankie Evans during the early morning of the 3rd of June 1969 in the South China Sea, 50 years ago this year. To discuss this tragedy, I'm joined by Captain Errol Stevens, RAN retired, who was the commander, or the second-in-command, of HMAS Melbourne at the time of the collision. Errol is 92 years old and joins us by telephone from northern New South Wales. Rear Admiral Simon Cullen retired, who, during his career, commanded the frigate HMAS Sydney and had multiple postings to the United States. He leads the Australian Capital Territory chapter of the Naval Historical Society of Australia. Via Skype from New Orleans, we have Louise Asola, the author of the award-winning book, American Boys, the true story of the lost 74 of the Vietnam War. And finally, Commander Matthew Vesper, who is a barrister at Sir Anthony Mason Chambers in Sydney and also a naval lawyer. He has a particular expertise in the boards of inquiry. Thank you all for joining me. Simon, if we can start with you, what were Melbourne and Frankie Evans doing in the South China Sea? Well, after the end of the Korean War, uh, there was great concern amongst uh, Western nations in particular about the spread of communism, particularly into Southeast Asia, um, through South Asia. And so in 1954, they formed an organisation known as the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation, or CETO, which is very much based on NATO at the time, and it was designed to provide for collective security in that part of the world. Uh, the core members were the UK, US, New Zealand and Australia, but it also included France, the Philippines, Thailand, and interestingly, Pakistan. And so uh, th this organisation had a headquarters uh, in uh, Thailand, in Bangkok, and there were planning staff in the various nations there. And they used to program a series of uh, exercises and activities on an annual basis. And in particular, from the maritime side, there was concern about uh, sub emerging submarine threats. And so uh, in 1969, there was uh, an anti-submarine warfare exercise scheduled in the South China Sea. So Melbourne deployed from Australia to participate in that exercise. And the Frankie Evans happened to have been uh, serving in support of operations in Vietnam and was detached from that activity to, to participate in the exercise. Louisa Sola, can you tell us a little bit about Frankie Evans? What sort of ship was she? The USS Frankie Evans was a... Um was a World War II class destroyer. Uh, she was 24 years old. She was a Sumner class, if you want to get technical. She was the third kind of class that was introduced during World War II. So she came on the line uh, just before Okinawa, which if you you know, know the World War II history, that was towards the end of the war. Um, she was mothballed then brought in on the line again, recommissioned to fight the war in um uh, the Korean War, and then went back on to mothballs, and then came back, you know, as the as these uh, anti-communism efforts uh, were taking place, um, 
she was renovated. They had a program. Uh, these ships were very old. They needed a couple things. They didn't get everything done because of politics, because there was no money. And uh, she was very old. Uh, these ships were built haphazardly during the war, World War II, when ships were being sunk all over uh, the Pacific. And so uh, by 24 years old, she was about 10 years past her due date and um, kept on the line to fight the war in Vietnam among the other older destroyers of her class. And a uh, lot of problems on board. <laughs> we had, you had engine problems, you had gun mounts not malfunctioning, uh, with rickety, paint peeling everywhere, with an old ship. Um, it's funny, I, I read through a lot of the letters written by some of these young men who were aboard her, and one of them, actually, he was one of the 74, I, I think he wrote to his parents, welcome to the crappiest ship in the U.S. Navy. I mean, it, it just was old. Um, and uh, But she was only kept to fight the war in Vietnam, and I make this point very clear in, in my book, American Boys. So, Simon, we've talked about the Melbourne in the earlier Melbourne Voyager episodes. So can you tell us something about her captain at the time of this collision, Captain John Stevenson? Yeah, John Philip Stevenson was born uh, in 1921. He joined the Royal Australian Navy College in 1934 as a cadet midshipman, uh, aged 13 years. And at that uh, time, the Naval College was down at HMO Cerberus in Victoria. Now, that generation um, experienced a lot of World War II service. So uh, during World War II, he had extensive uh, sea experience. He served in HMO ships Canberra, Nesta, Napier and Shropshire. And interestingly, when he was serving in Nesta, she was sunk uh, in convoy duty going to Malta. So he actually survived uh, a ship being sunk around him. He was there to witness the Japanese surrender in Yokohama Bay in 1945. And he saw the damage that was uh, caused by the atomic bomb in Nagasaki. So he had a very extensive experience. And in fact, he also assisted with the evacuation of Australian prisoners of war from Japan back to Australia after the war. Uh, uh, he was uh, evolving as a very professional naval officer, he, and he was extremely high reg highly regarded even in the early stages of his naval career. He could be described as a typical officer and a gentleman. Uh, he was that sort of uh, very easy to get on with, but extremely professional at the same time. Um, he, uh, he had lots of operational service after World War II, uh, and uh, this uh, uh, peaked initially in command of the Australian Navy training ship HMOs Barco in the early 1950s. But he was a navigation officer by profession, uh, and so uh, he served not only as navigator in HMOs Australia too, but also as a fleet navigating officer in the 1950s. Uh, but he was so distinguished that, for example, during the uh, Olympics in Melbourne in 1956, he was selected to be the equity to His Royal Highness mm. Prince Philip at Edinburgh. So he was escorting Prince Philip around Australia during uh, the Olympic Games period in the mid-1950s. Uh, uh, even as a commander, he was selected for his second command of HMAS Anzac in the late 1950s. And then he had a bit of career broadening. He was posted to Bangkok as the defence attaché. And I imagine that's probably where he got uh, uh, his deep exposure to CETO initially uh, through the planning staff that were already in Bangkok. After uh, his time in Thailand, he commanded HMOs Watson in Sydney, that's a shore base, and then he took command of HMOs Vendetta uh, as a captain and also commanded the uh, 10th Destroyer Squadron at the same time. 
but his uh, his career didn't his, his career in the sixties continued to prosper. He then, after Vendetta, commanded Sydney Three. Uh, he then commanded HMO Cerberus, and then he uh, went to Washington as a naval attaché. So his second representative job uh, as a captain, and uh, before commanding HMOs Melbourne uh, in late 1968, in October 1968. So just looking at that, he was he made captain in 1960 uh, when he involved in the collision with Frankie Evans in 1969. So he spent nine years as a captain. So that just goes to show a different way of doing things uh, uh, in, in early times in the Royal Australian Navy. But he was an extremely experienced officer, uh, obviously very highly regarded at the same time because of his representational service, and he was destined for much uh, bigger and better things in his later career. Indeed, extremely experienced and very well-rounded. But Louise, can you tell us a little about the captain of Frankie Evans? At the time it was Commander Albert McLemore. What sort of experience and background did he have? Uh, in contrast to Commander, uh, I'm sorry, Captain John Stevenson, um, Commander Albert McLemore had a very different pedigree. Um, and I actually spoke with Captain Stevenson for my book, and he was very kind, and I done a lot of re- did a lot of research on his background, and, and I will just say that uh, Commander McLemore was complete opposite. He was not, uh, he didn't join the Navy as a teenager. He, um, he was 18 years old at the end of World War II, growing up in Vallejo, California, which is a small community uh, outside of San Francisco. Um, he had a little bungalow house. Um, he fell in love with a local girl. He wanted to be a truck driver. And the local girl, Alice, said, I don't want to marry a truck driver. So California Maritime Academy in Vallejo, down the street, was building new dormitories and enrolling more young men to train them for life at and it, it is nothing like the Naval Academy in Annapolis. This was this. I thought it looked like a summer camp almost. I had been there. Um, he was so he did that. He went to California Maritime Academy. Uh, they all they do is train in ship handling. Um, they actually spend a semester going from uh, from San Francisco to South America. And, you know, they train in, in all the facets of, of ship handling. Now, Macklemore loved the engine room. He was on the, uh, I think his last job before the USS Frankie Evans, he was the head of the engineering department on the USS Bonhomme Richard, uh, which we know as the Bonnie Dick, the big, um, big aircraft carrier. He loved the engine room. He loved the, the type of men he worked with in the engine room. He was not at all uh, big about himself and the Navy. He wasn't what we call here in the United States a ring knocker. These are Naval Academy types. They are very big-headed. I mean, he really wasn't like that. Um, so taking command of the Evans uh, was a big deal, but, you know, the Evans was an old destroyer. It wasn't the prize kind of command, if you will. It was, we need, uh, there was a shortage of officers. So it was, it was something like, we need officers to command these vessels and it's your turn. And so he was head of the Evans. The men on board loved him. These were, now Macklemore and Alice had five young, five children, all boys. So Macklemore on the ship, on the Evans, these were his kids. Um, and the officers loved him and the enlisted, uh, the enlisted sailors loved him. They thought he was very, uh, straight, very, um, 
and uh, kind of tough when he needed to be. He was humble. Um, and that one gentleman, actually the highest uh, ranking enlisted on board was Chief Riley. And Chief Riley had one at one point told me, now Chief Riley passed away two years ago. Um, he told me at one point, he said, you know, some of the things Macklemore got away with, you would have been shot in World War II if you, not not what he got away with, but what he let people get away with. For example, sleeping when you're supposed to be on watch. There was one time where a, a young sailor on watch was asleep and um, the chief took his shoes off, <laughs> the sleeping sailor, and took them to the uh, to the to the uh, officer in charge and said, "Okay, when he wakes up and looks for his shoes, let him know he shouldn't be sleeping on watch." And that was the chief's way of handling things. But Captain McLemore, I mean, he didn't really, he didn't really, he wasn't squared away as far as discipline goes. I mean, you're, when you're running a ship, I, I, if everybody loves you, you might be doing something wrong. And so. Um, I do know after the Evans, Macklemore never probably uh, was probably never normal again. Um, and I talked to one of his children, and it really was uh, an awful thing um, for him to have to have gone through because he was so humble and he really loved the the the, the crew. So that's the best way I could I could describe him. Thanks, Louise. Um, Simon, can you take us through the lead-up to the collision and the collision itself? Certainly. So uh, on the night of uh, 2, 3 June, you can imagine yourself in the South China Sea, uh, a typical tropical night. So the sea is uh, almost smooth to calm, slight ripple, a very low swell. Uh, It's very warm. Um, There is very good uh, visibility because it's a moonlit night, although it is partly cloudy. So it's uh, it's ideal for um, operations at sea. And so uh, we have exercise Sea Spirit, which uh, is the CETO exercise that uh, uh, Melbourne and her five escorts and embarked aircraft are participating in. The sort of north of the Spratly Islands in that sort of general centre of the South China Sea. Melbourne... Uh, is the officer in tactical command. So Captain Stevenson is uh, organising the formation, ordering it around. Uh, Melbourne is also the Australian flagship, though, so you've got Rear Admiral Crabb, who's actually the fleet commander, is on board at the the very same time. But he's not actually in any way manoeuvring ships. He's just there embarked and uh, doing uh, bigger picture things. Um, So they're heading west through the South China Sea. Uh, They're... um, Exercising against a submarine threat, so they are zigzagging. They have uh, ships in a sector screen around the carrier to provide defence against any threat the submarine might pose. And they also have aircraft airborne uh, operating in anti-submarine mode. Uh, So there were five escorts for Melbourne that night. Uh, Three were American, one was British and one was uh, New Zealand ship. So the Americans were Evans, Keyes and Larson. Uh, The UK ship was Cleopatra. And the New Zealand uh, ship was a cruiser, in fact, um, Blackpool. Um, in typical tactical fashion, uh, the ships were fully darkened, so very little light emanating from the ships, so they couldn't be detected by a submarine or any other form of observation. Navigation lights were dimmed, so just barely enough to, to enable manoeuvring around, but um, uh, not much light at all from the task force. But uh, interestingly, they were all transmitting on radar and making other electronic emissions, so it wasn't uh, completely silent. Um, 
Evans had been designated as the rescue destroyers. Every time uh, flying operation underway, uh, as a precaution, a ship is stationed a thousand yards astern of the carrier, and it's there with uh, helicopters that might be around uh, there to rescue any aircrew that might uh, get into into trouble if their aircraft ditched during the landing or takeoff from the aircraft carrier. So um, fairly close to the carrier, but right astern, just following the carrier wherever the carrier goes, uh, quite safely following her around. But as I said, Evans was uh, in the screen uh, with the other four escorts that night. Now, on, on the night of 2nd June, so at the start of that night, um, there had been three flying windows, so to speak, between 1,800 and 2,300, and they had all gone very well. Evans had manoeuvred to rescue destroy station from the screen without any incidents whatsoever. Uh, but then we move on to the middle watch, so the early hours of the 3rd of June from midnight to 0400. Um, there's obviously a change of watchkeeping staff and the bridges of all ships, but because uh, the next flying window was due to start at 30 minutes past midnight, on board Melbourne you still had Captain Stevenson there, navigating officer and obviously the full bridge staff very much alert, ready to manoeuvre the formation to accommodate the next period of flying. Um, on board Evans, um, Lieutenant Ramsey, uh, Lieutenant JG Ramsey, was the oncoming officer of the watch. So he arrived uh, on the bridge at about 23.45 or so. Um, he didn't go for the operations room or the combat information centre in, in US terms uh, to get a, a picture of what was going on in terms of the formation. Uh, so he went straight to the bridge, um, read the captain's night orders, took the uh, um, took the ship from the first watch, officer of the watch, and then proceeded uh, with activity. And so the ships were all patrolling their sector quite vigorously, so it was... Um, very common to almost be continuously manoeuvring inside the, the sector box uh, around the carrier to make sure that anti-submarine warfare uh, defence was um, was effective. Now, the captain's night orders said that he was to be called for changes in any formation, but any other routine, any other normal changes of course and speed to maintain station, you didn't need to call the captain. So it's only those major manoeuvres that required uh, the captain to be called. Uh, the captain was in his cabin fast asleep, and uh, as I said, the next flying window started uh, about 30 minutes after Lieutenant Ramsey took his watch. Um, it was a very fast-paced activity because uh, there were, um, um, during the watch, first changes to a, to a flying course, which required the formation course to be um, um, signalled, zigzag plans to be stopped, restarted, etc., etc. So you needed to be really on the ball. And uh, so it was a high workload for all the staff and all the bridges of all the ships in the screen that night. At about 2.30 in the middle watch, um, Lieutenant Ramsey uh, chose to hand over the con to uh, his assistant officer watch, Lieutenant Hobson. So I should also say that Lieutenant Ramsey, um, while he had been on board Evans for two years, uh, did not have any formal bridge qualifications. So he was not a qualified officer of the watch or officer of the deck, uh, um, so to speak. But he had uh, been doing that work for several months, so he was pretty much familiar with manoeuvring. Lieutenant Hobson, who took the con at 2.30 to allow Lieutenant Ramsey to start reading some signals and doing some more administrative-type stuff, this was his first time at sea uh, in the US Navy. So you can, you can imagine the experience levels are quite low um, 
And then between uh, 2.30 when Lieutenant Ramsey took the con and was responsible, um, he didn't have the watch, so to speak, but he was responsible for manoeuvring minute to minute of the ship. Between about 2.30 and, and about eight minutes past three, uh, um, there was a lot of misunderstanding in the communications that were coming from Melbourne, from the OTC. And as a consequence, uh, Evans quickly got herself out of station. Um, and she, in fact, by eight minutes past three, was in Blackpool sector. So uh, she'd come outside of a sector screen and uh, was in another ship's um, screening sector. Uh, and at all times, um, Ramsey and Hobson believed they were on the starboard side of Melbourne. But in fact, because they had uh, got the manoeuvring wrong, they'd finished up on the port bow of Melbourne. So they were on the opposite side of Melbourne to um, where they thought they were going to be. I won't go through all the manoeuvres, but just to say that they got themselves confused and out of station. At nine minutes past three, um, Melbourne signalled the fact that she was about to alter to a flying course and that um, Formation 1 was going to be executed, which would put Evans into plane guard, res rescue destroyer station astern of um, the carrier. The captain wasn't called. Um, they didn't do a relative velocity solution to get from where they were to where they needed to be. They didn't speak with the operations room to get to confirmation of recommended course to how they would get from A to B. Um, they just eyeballed the um, manoeuvring. At 3.10, so one minute after the warning, so to speak, that was executed. So that was the order for Evans to move from where she was to plane guard station. Um, so as I said, uh, Evans thought she was on the starboard bow of Melbourne. So she turned to starboard to turn away from the carrier and go round to her station. She was on the port side, so when she turned to starboard, she turned straight towards Melbourne. And quite clearly, um, when that occurred, um, so remember 3.10 is the time that the signal was executed. Uh, captain Robson, oh sorry, the captain of um, Melbourne and the Evans, uh, sorry, um, Evans were uh, heading on a collision course. Captain Stevenson saw uh, what was occurring and the first thing he did was signal his own course to Evans. He said, my course is 260, so westerly course. Uh, it was misinterpreted on the bridge of Evans as 160. So this reinforced in their mind that they were on the starboard side of the carrier, not the port side. Stevenson again saw that uh, the reaction wasn't uh, what he expected from Evans, and they were still closing. So he decided to turn his navigation lights on to full brilliance, so clearly they could see where each other was, and they could see better get, understand the aspect of the ship relative to each other. No change in Evans' course. And then... Uh, Captain Stevenson said uh, basically to Evans, you are on a collision course. Uh, and he repeated that again, you are on a collision course. At that time, um, they, the crew in Evans realised they were on a collision course. They were very close and they ordered very hard starboard. So they're coming from the port side, turning starboard towards, and then they go hard starboard. At the very last minute, Melbourne goes hard to port as well try and make a glancing blow as opposed to whatever, but it was too late. And so at 3.15, so this is only five minutes after that signal was executed, 
crunch uh, they collided. So, Errol, you were serving as the XO in Melbourne at the time. What are your memories of the collision? Well, my memory of the of the collision was I'd uh, done rounds that the night before, and uh, we were doing deck landings, and my cabin was right under the flight deck, so we'd hear the thump of the aircraft, which had kept me awake. And eventually, that's, we stopped the actual night flying with the uh, trackers, and then uh, we were using helicopters, and uh, of course, they were much quieter as far as I was concerned. I don't make such a thump. And I'd gone to bed at about midnight, and I was sleeping away, and I woke up. Uh, for no, but no apparent reason, I woke up, and I thought, oh, there's something, something odd. And it was, I don't know, it was a sixth sense. Anyway, I started to... I, this is about two o'clock in the morning. I can't remember the exact time. And I got... I I got up. I was in uh, pyjamas. And I, I got, got up out of bed, starting putting on my overalls, which was always my quick dress. And then suddenly over the, uh, the tannoy system, the loudspeaker system in the ship was uh, hands to collision stations, uh, close all red and blue doors, and with a sense of urgency. And then a few, well, what seemed to be a few seconds later, there was a thump and and the ship shook quite violently. And by this time I I had my overalls on and I thought, you know, there was obviously something something very wrong and I the feeling was when you've been when you're really rough seas and you've been over the top of a wave and you you fall down the other side in the ship and a big thump and uh, so I raced anyway I, I got fully I put my overalls on and raced up to the bridge and when I got up on the flight deck which was just above me and I looked out and uh, I could see a half of a ship uh, drifting down the starboard side. I couldn't see the front half of the ship. Anyway, I got to the bridge and I spoke to the captain and he said, oh, we've just cut the Evans in half and uh, go down and uh, check on the damage to the bows, make sure it's all under control. So I... And away I went down to the bows of the ship where the shipwrights and the damage control parties were busy patching up the the damage to the ship. And they were well, the shipwrights were well under control. There was nothing I could do. And the shipwright officer was there taking charge of, of it. And so then I went back up. Uh, and I went down aft to see what was happening to the stern half of the, uh, the Evans, and which I could, because I found out it was the Evans. And uh, by this time, the quarterdeck party had got lines across, and uh, we actually stopped alongside the, the ship. By this time, was had stopped, and uh, the Frank Evans. The stern half of the Frank Evans was secured alongside. 
and we had a ladder down to the stern half and the survivors were all coming on board up the ladder, uh, being being assisted by our sailors where where necessary and when everybody was on, on board from the Frank Evans, they told me that they'd checked and it was clear. Uh, so I rang the bridge and told them that we'd cleared the stern half. And then uh, I thought, well, I'll go, better go down and just have a quick check that nobody was uh, had been left on board. And so I went down the ladder on board and looked around. I had my torch with because it was say it was dark, moonlight, but but it was dark, and uh, luckily luckily it was fairly very fairly calm, almost dead flat, not quite, but it's a bit of motion, and of course the ship, the second half, the stern was uh, starting to settle, and I was frightened, that I was frightened, I was a bit worried because it was. It, we had secured it right on the quarter deck, the stern half, and I was a bit worried that it was, if it sank, it would hit our, our starboard propeller, because we had two, two propellers. And uh, so, uh, anyway, I went down on board, and I, luckily I had my torch with me. I wandered around, and because uh, I didn't know the, 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 what the stern half of the I'd never been on board the Frank Evans before, so I didn't know the layout. And uh, so I went down a hatch, and I could see it was couldn't see or hear anything. And, uh, and then I, uh, because I, I was a bit worried that it was going to sink, as I said before. Now I, I came came up. I wasn't sure. I couldn't open any any of the watertight doors because. I didn't know if the sea was, not knowing the ship, I didn't know if the sea was the other side of the water, watertight doors was holding up the sea. So I wasn't game to open any of the watertight doors and I I came up and decided it was time I got out of the ship and, and, and came back to the ship and we were, uh, there we started, by this time we'd organised the, uh, Survivors and giving some because some of them didn't have uh, much in the way of clothing or just in their pajamas and so on. And the supply officer was organising uh, some extra clothing and so on. And uh, that's I think that's about enough on, on the actual collision. So Errol, once you had the survivors on board and you had the stern half of Frankie Evans tied up to Melbourne. How did the rest of the evening progress? Well, obviously, uh, the I was telling the bridge what was happening down aft. We had most of the... Uh, there Evidently, a few had managed, uh, managed to get on board, I'm not sure, but most of them were on the... They're, they're all starting to assemble on the, on the quarter deck, those that could, those that were sick. Or hurt me anyway, because quite a few of there was minor, or well, some was, was, was one dead. Uh, they they had uh, been, they had gone to the sick bay, which was up forward, and were being looked after by the medical medical side. And of course, we were in touch with the uh, American flagship, 
in charge, who were the American Admiral, Vice Admiral, I think, a Rear Admiral, who was in charge of the exercise. And we were, uh, uh, the bridge was uh, sending messages to, to them of the state of the, of the uh, rescue organisation. We had, uh, well, we'd got all our boats away and, of course, we got as many of the hel helicopters as we could into the air, all searching. And, in fact, one of our, the, the, officer, the officer of the, uh, in charge of the quarterdeck, that's right, luckily, there are other officers there and the, petty, the chief and petty officers were helping. Uh, the officer by the name of uh, Burns, uh, uh, he had, uh, he was actually a clearance diver, a very strong swimmer. He'd jumped overboard and in fact was rescuing, putting, he, I think it was two or three sailors that he had, he pulled out of the water because uh, I'd got the gang. Well, this time we'd got the gangways down and the boats. I say all our boats were away, including the Admiral's barge, all searching uh, for survivors. And the helicopters were buzzing around with their down lights on to look in the sea. And so, how long did you did you keep um, the stern half of Frankie Evans alongside? It was probably about half an hour. Now, I, I am not sure exactly. Everything was happening at once, and I, being the XO, was theory supposed to be everywhere, doing everything. Not, no, 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 I exaggerate. The captain of the ship was on the bridge. That was uh, J.P. Stevenson, who was doing a very good there because he was still manoeuvring the... Uh, the Melbourne as necessary and he I mean the captain of the ship is responsible for everything the buck stops with him he was talking to the other ship other ships and the and telling the Americans what was happening and we were uh, we had all the we were gathering all the survivors who could on the quarter deck and the sick or the injured and so on were transferred to the sick bay. And in fact, we had one one dead person who was on the flight deck and the initial collision must have thrown him onto the flight deck, the front end of the flight deck. And he was taken down to the sick bay, but of course he was, by this time he was dead. And so, he was, in fact, placed in the forehead shower because the sick bay was full of people who were with my, reasonably minor injuries and were, uh, were being patched up down there. And the survivors aft were being, were being given uh, food. We'd uh, arrange for food to come up and coffee and drinks and they were obviously talking to one another, discussing what had happened. And I say the, the crew and the, and the officers were, were being very generous in, in those without clothes or only partially clothed. They were giving them their own clothes or you know, spare, spare trousers, spare coats and so on to keep them warm. And... Uh, we didn't keep them for very long because uh, 
they were bad. They couldn't go back on the, the well. The, how long did we? We didn't keep the, the Frank the stern half of the Frank E Evans alongside for very long. My feeling was probably about an hour, but that's I didn't I didn't put a stopwatch it or anything. So I could have been slightly less. I could have been a bit more. In the end, the order came from the bridge because they were worried that, that it might sink, and because we, we didn't know how how long their, their watertight doors would hold, and or whether there was a slow was slow leaks right down in the stern somewhere that we didn't know about, and so the, we cast it off, and it gradually drifted away because there was nobody. As far as we're concerned, everybody was off, and uh, the, in fact, the, the some of the surviving officers, I can remember talking to the EXO of the of the Frank Evans, and uh, he was trying to get the names together of survivors, and uh, we. Uh, uh, yeah, the boat and our boats and the boats from the those that weren't were gradually we were pretty sure we'd got all the survivors we could, and we we had a shuttle service going back to the American flagship. They took they took all the survivors, uh, including including yes, that's right. We said the one. One dead person we had on board. We sent him across to Simon. In the last episode, we heard about Melbourne's collision with Voyager, and we know that she underwent extensive repairs thereafter. But can you talk about whether there were any additional procedures put in place to prevent a, a similar collision? Well, after the uh, after the Voyager collision, they compiled an HMOS Melbourne operating guide, which very clearly explained how the carrier would operate. Uh, as far as procedures, etc., and established an exclusion zone around the carrier of 2,000 yards that, uh, you, unless directed, you shouldn't enter into that. And the other thing was, uh, whenever moving close to the carrier, always turn away, not towards, as your your first reaction. So, um, but through post uh, 964 and Voyager, every time Melbourne operated, they were acutely conscious of the risk of collision. And so, when we get to 1969 and and this exercise in the South China Sea. That consciousness remained, and uh, before the exercise started, uh, Captain Stevenson realised that he would have five escorts from three different countries, who weren't particularly, certainly weren't used. To, maybe uh, the Kiwi ship was, but the others certainly weren't used to operating uh, with Melbourne. So he had all the captains on board for dinner, and uh, he briefed them about what happened with the Voyager collision, the lessons that were learnt about that emphasised how he wanted the ships to manoeuvre around Melbourne, including the 2,000-yard um, exclusion zone. And Rear Admiral Crabb uh, personally emphasised the need to turn away in your initial manoeuvre. So uh, it was quite... The captains um, all understood, I think, quite clearly uh, how to operate with Melbourne uh, when she's conducting flying operations. Um, despite these uh, warnings, though, on the 31st of May, so three days before the collision... Uh, USS Larson had actually turned towards Melbourne during a manoeuvre, uh, despite being told to turn away. 
So as an additional precaution, Admiral Crabb directed that um, the exclusion zone would move from 2,000 yards to 3,000 yards. So an extra 50% uh, safety buffer there. Um, and so I, I think they were um, more than adequate in preparing the escorts for operating with Melbourne and understanding how to avoid getting yourself into hazards. Matthew Vesper, major incidents like this generally result in a board of inquiry and possibly even courts martial. Now, in this case, there was initially a joint board of inquiry. Can you talk about that a little? Well, the the situation was one of haste in that um, within within days, in fact, the day after the inquiry, the Australian Naval Board were appointing um, people to be involved in an inquiry. So one can infer that Obviously, the Australians and the Americans were talking straight away about what to do in terms of an inquiry. Both the American regulations at the time and the Australian regulations both contemplated boards of inquiry, but neither, as I could, as far as my research tells me, contemplated the conduct of joint boards of inquiry. Um, And so there needed to be some um, jury rigged. regulations to permit such a joint board of inquiry to occur. Um, And what seems to have occurred is that um, the Australian Naval Board said, well, look, we'll we'll essentially allow there to be a US, uh, an inquiry conducted uh, pursuant to US regulations, but with some amendment to allow for for some Australian processes and the presence of Australian board members and also Australian um, an Australian Council assisting. So, on it seems on about the fourth or fifth of June, um, the Australian Naval Board appoints or well, agrees to appoint um, members to a joint um, board of inquiry, and the Americans did the same thing. Um, and the, the inquiry sat for the first time on the sixth of June, which was. Sorry, on the 9th of June, I beg your pardon, which was six days after the tragedy. So one can see it was done very quickly. Um, and perhaps the, the haste involved had three um, major consequences uh, that I think have lingered, um, that, that has fueled some doubts and some conspiracy theories and controversies that have lingered. Um, this day, and that they seem to me seem to be threefold. Firstly, while the composition of the board was uh, three members of each nation um, of similar uh, of, of equal rank, the president was uh, an American, Rear Admiral King, as we know, and and he was also in the well, he was c- commanded the. Um, elements with which Evans was a part of. So there was firstly um, an American um, as opposed to an independent per, um, member, say a British or perhaps even um, um, a New Zealander perhaps, but at least you've got a, an American. So already uh, there might be some apprehension that he, he may not be partial, uh, sorry, maybe partial to one side, and then secondly, he's in the chain of command, which also 
um, fueled uh, doubts about his partiality. The second thing was there had to be a melding of regulations uh, and 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 how one would deal with certain things that would arise in the inquiry, such as um, when um, officers were identified as suspects, and that occurred with the two lieutenants who were um, the officer of the watch and also his assistant, and they being they being identified as um, suspects meant that they were excused from giving evidence and um, uh, that, uh, that I think it was in fact the assistant um, may have agreed to give some evidence I should but, but, but Lieutenant Ramsey he um, through his lawyer exercised the right to silence and so he his version of events was not heard now Australian regulations didn't permit that to occur but um, and what would have probably happened in, if, if this was a, an Australian Board of Inquiry um, was even if someone was suspected of wrongdoing, they would still be uh, compelled to give evidence and answer questions, but would enjoy an immunity in respect of the evidence they get they were to give in that inquiry. Um, the only exception to that would be if the Australian had been charged before he or she was compelled to give evidence. So, um, and how that played out was, as I say, Lieutenant, I think it was Ramsey, um, didn't have to give evidence, and yet uh, he was had the kind of Evans. But on the other hand, Captain Stevens, who had the kind of Stevenson, who had the kind of Melbourne, had to give evidence, and that fueled um, a sense of. Um, Injustice and bias. I might even read that in Joe Stevenson's book, In the Wait. She feels that that was um, a clear indication that there was um, unequal treatment of the Americans as opposed to the Australians. And the third thing that arose because of this kind of melding of two uh, nations' inquiry regulations was council assisting. Um, Two officers were appointed, but one was a captain, the American Captain Robertson, and the Australian was a commander, Commander Harold Glass, QC. Um, officers probably of equal um, legal ability, and Harold Glass has seemed to have been a fantastic lawyer in his day and, and performed very well in the inquiry. But nevertheless, because of the, the disparity of rank, again, there was a perception that Robertson was the lead council assisting. So so there, there were three aspects of the mechanics of the inquiry, which I wonder whether had there been more time to think these things through, they, they could have been avoided. And some of these lingering um, views that the inquiry was unfair could have been avoided. Louise, do you have anything to add about the Joint Board of Inquiry from a uh, US perspective? I think Matthew touched down on this point, which is this really was thrown together. I mean, we there were no real protocols of meshing the two countries and the two rules for inquiry. So they just kind of 
threw it together because everybody wanted to know what happened and how this happened. And there is not even a little piece of me after reading and doing all this research and everything, there's not even a little piece of me that thinks it was the right thing to put Rear Admiral Jerome King in charge of this Board of Inquiry. I think he was in the chain of command. I think he knew. No, I don't think. I know. I mean, he sent a memorandum to all the skippers of all the American ships during the CETO exercise before the, this collision, uh, chiding the ship for, for maneuvering sloppily. He knew the Navy had problems. The entire Navy knew it had problems. Uh, going back to the command histories of that era, the late 60s, I mean, the Navy had a quote-unquote collision situation. They had near misses all the time. Uh, ironically, month of June in 1969, Esquire magazine ran a very tongue-in-cheek feature saying the um, Esquire magazine's official board of inquiry into the status of the United States Navy. And it lists bullet in bullet form over three pages. And Esquire magazine was a quite a big magazine, about the same size as Life magazine. Uh, all the naval mishaps in the late 60s. And uh, of course, this was uh, missing one collision at sea that killed 74 Americans because this, you know, this had just happened. So uh, I, I, I don't think, uh, I think the Navy, the United States Navy knew it had a problem. And so, you kind of have to, I think Jerome King should have been questioned. I think he should have said, yes, we knew we had a problem. We knew we were dealing with this. And the status of the United States Navy at the time, low morale in the Vietnam War, uh, you had understaffed ships. You had junior officers doing things that they were not really prepared for. And I interviewed a handful of junior officers of the, that were on the Evans during that deployment, the one prior. Um, I interviewed uh, extensively other other officers who had served during that era. Why were they in the Navy? Because they did, they thought they were going to get drafted or they got drafted. And so they took their college <laughs> diploma and they went and, and went to uh, officer candidate school and they were accepted because they were desperate. So, you know, the country was desperate for officers. Uh, there was no surface warfare officers training course at the time. Uh, the, the, the line officers, surface line officers would learn on the job. And um, it just wasn't an easy time. And the Navy knew it had problems. And the fact that they never discussed them during this joint void of inquiry, I mean, this was the big deal. This was, how did this happen? And in American Boys, you know, my book is about people. It's not a technical Navy book. And so when I had to write about the collision, how did I explain it? I, and, and you'd have to read it. I mean, it take me forever to explain, but I, I explain how it happened in layman's terms. And I think this was a missing component in the board of inquiry, um, for for uh, from the you know for, from my perspective and the, the research I did. I think I think Jerome King should have been on the other side, sitting there answering questions about his navy and his group. So, Errol, uh, talking about the uh, the collision and the joint board of inquiry that followed in in Subic, did you play any part in that? Yes, uh, well, of course. The, uh, once we uh, got, uh, we went into into Singapore to be uh, have the bow patched up enough to get us back to uh, Australia. 
but the uh, uh, I think the captain was in Subic in Subic Bay, which is in the Philippines, where Philippines, where the Board of Inquiry was being held under Admiral King, I think it was. But he, uh, U.S. Navy. But uh, anyway, I say the captain was away for six weeks, so I was in command because being the executive officer. I was second in command at any rate, and so I was running the ship and trying to get things done in Singapore, and, but telling the sending signals backwards and forwards about how things were going to the captain. And he was being interrogated over there, and then I was called to go to the Board of Inquiry. And so I had to leave uh, and fly across to Subic Bay, and I appeared before the the board, uh, and I was asked various questions. Now, do you want me to actually go into the what I said or what didn't do or what? Yeah, what 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 sort of questions did they ask you, uh, Errol? Yeah, well, I had been, I had, uh, I think it was H. D. Stevenson who was then work. He was then the second naval member, I think. Had flown up. He was he was one of the he was a senior Australian Australian on the board of I think there were three Australian officers on the board. Uh, he was a, he was a senior. He was a rear admiral, and then he'd got hold of me the night before I was due to appear and said, "Now look, uh, I don't want you to start getting involved with any of the details of the." Uh, actual manoeuvring and so on. Well, of course, well, I did not know at that stage because I was not involved with the manoeuvring of the ships or anything. He said, well, I don't want you to get, get involved. Uh, if there are any questions on the manoeuvring of the ships, you, you know, you, you'll be quite frank and tell them that you were not involved. But on the rescue side, of course, you were vastly involved, so you can answer answer that. But Keep it as, keep it as, just stick to the facts. Don't, don't wander off the, that, and it will all will be well anyway. So I appeared before the board, and obviously I had to say my name and what my job was and so on. And, and I was asked about what I, once more, what I, what I did, actually did, and what happened as far as I was concerned about the ship and. I told them as best as I could and what we'd done. And, and uh, so I wasn't actually in front of the board for very long. Oh, that's what, what they were seemed to be terribly interested in was uh, this hands to emergency stations. I don't think the American Navy u had used it at the time. I don't, don't know whether they, whether they used it, uh, whether, they, whether they adopted it or not. Emergency hands to emergency stations is not abandoned ship. You know, it's for an emergency where you don't quite know what's going on, but something's going to happen, and you've got to you've got to have people in various places, and you all the boats get manned and everything like that. But you don't you don't abandon ship. It's emergency. It could be fire, flood, or anything. And then from 
when you've got all the hands, when well, some people automatically go to various stations and others, they're all fallen in, ready to be detailed off to go and back people up, whatever the emergency happens to be. Anyway, I had to go into the details of that, what we were what we did at emergency stations. Uh, but that was uh, that was really all I had to answer about. Thank you, Errol. Louise, you've talked a little about uh, perceptions just prior to the collision. Can you talk a little about US reaction in the Navy and, and indeed amongst the broader public to this tragedy? Well, there were two reactions. The Navy, um, the United States Navy, in the early 70s created surface warfare officers course they created a training video about this incident again this was a navy that knew it had problems with training and so that was the navy's reaction the navy's reaction really was we're gonna we're gonna do better and uh, we had a, a admiral elmer zumwalt um and he tried to get the navy squared away and um the public the public is probably the saddest component. Uh, the reaction initially was, oh my God, but then it was, so what? Or it's the war in Vietnam or nothing. And nobody remembers what happened. This was a time when 300 Americans on average were killed a week in Vietnam. And this is in a, that death toll was in its second year. 1968 had a higher death toll. In 1969, you had a new president President Nixon, he said, I'm bringing the troops home. And, you know, I'm, that's what he, that's how he ran on that platform. And he announced troop withdrawals in the middle of this board of inquiry. So, I mean, there was an actual page from the Navy Times that I used, that I had found in my research. And it was, you know, the board of inquiry was at the bottom corner. And then up top, big letters, Nixon announces troop withdrawals. And so, you know, that the country was waiting for him to announce that he was bringing home troops. Uh, and so the reaction really was, uh, there are a lot of people dying over there. And the evidence was very, very much grouped into this, into the Vietnam War picture. Um, from a public opinion standpoint, I mean, one mother in New York City whose son was killed on the evidence, I mean, war protesters were calling, crank calling her house, if you could believe this, and saying, Things like your son got what he deserved. I mean, this is when people were spitting on men in uniform and women in uniform. I mean, they uh, they were punishing the, the, the troops coming home. Um, it was all it was very political. And so, you know, the Evans, the survivors had to come home and change out of their uniform in the bathroom at the airport not talk not talk about what happened to them. And I think that was the second tragedy of the Vietnam War and this really was that nobody they came home and nobody cared. And they had to spin through hell. And so that that and this is again, you know, this is the Vietnam War. Very, very much this my book is framed on the around the Vietnam War because you know United States government that's uh, like to keep the evidence separate from the war and they did that going back to nineteen sixty nine. The first map for the associate that they provided to the Associated Press about where this incident occurred has Manila, Philippines, and a little X where the collision. They didn't even include Vietnam in the map. And this is something that ran in the newspapers two days after the incident. I mean, they wanted to keep this as far away from the Vietnam War as possible. 
uh, I think one one newspaper article, I put the collision in the South Pacific. I mean, they really wanted to keep this tragedy away from Vietnam because, again, Vietnam was a public relations nightmare for the United States government at that time. So, um, so I think that was the that was the that was one of the tragedies of this was people were told, you know, so what, get over it, don't talk about it, and and that never turns out well, fifty years later even. So, Errol, there must have been a sense of disbelief that Melbourne could have been involved in two major collisions. Can you comment on the feeling at the time? When I, when I felt that thump, as I was putting on my rover, I thought, what on earth could that be? Oh, no, not another collision. Well, I knew it was a collision when I went, because I just said, hands to emergency stations. And I thought, oh no, oh no, not again, particularly as we'd warned everybody beforehand to keep out of the way of an aircraft carrier. No matter, the, the normal rules do not apply as once you start, once you're operating aircraft, the carrier, everybody keeps out of its way. And, uh, uh, I thought, oh, no, no, not again. Because people tend to remember the bad things and not so much the good things. And we, we people said oh, we were jinxed, but we were, we, was, we were very lucky in it. We'd had so few incidents. Like, uh, we were sort of blamed as unlucky because... A ferry had run run into us when we were alongside the wharf, and there was nothing to do with us. <laughs> we were actually secured alongside. But no, then but then the uh, the Voyager, yes, that was another. That was the other major, the major incident. And once more, the Melbourne was completely in the clear. It was the fault of the other ship. It was not Melbourne's fault, but I thought, well, gee, we've been, we have been unlucky. We were unlucky in regards to those two major incidents. But in the life of a ship, you, you have your ups and downs and you have your close calls and you go through storms and gales and you survive and life goes on. Simon Cullen, in the aftermath of the collision, what happened to the damaged Melbourne and the surviving section of, of Frankie Evans? About uh, two hours after the collision, a salvage and repair party from the USS Larson went on board uh, the stern half of Evans. And, and the purpose of that was to just do a quick assessment as to whether uh, it would stay afloat. Uh, they decided it could, providing a lot of top weight was jettisoned, so they got rid of about five tonnes of top weight, you know, fan motors and damaged boats, etc., and just chucked them over the side. Once uh, it was confirmed uh, that uh, the, the stern half was safe, Larson came alongside, offloaded personal records, classified documents, contents of supply officers safe, etc., and uh, did all that. In the meantime, uh, a towing hawser was rigged, Com 7 Fleet decided that rather than Larson towing it back to Subic Bay, uh, better to send a fleet tug. So two days later, a fleet tug arrived from Subic Bay, towed the stern half all the way into Subic Bay, arrived there on the 9th of June, 
Um, basically, uh, she was then stripped for spare parts, etc. 1st of July, officially decommissioned, and then uh, towed out to sea and used as a wreck target for uh, tar- um, weapons practice. Melbourne, um, uh, after recovery operation was complete, headed to Singapore, as Errol has mentioned. Um, did some quick uh, repairs there, which took about three weeks to patch her up to make sure she was seaworthy. She then went directly back to uh, Sydney and was docked at Cockatoo Island Dockyard um, in July and stayed there until November. Full repairs were conducted, including a new bow section, and then she resumed her program in November that year. Matt Vesper, can you briefly describe for us what courts martial were held in the aftermath of this and what, what some of the results were? Commander Macklemore was court-martialed for um, uh, dereliction of duty and neg- negligently hazarding his ship, and he pleaded not guilty. And I understand essentially on the basis that he said he was not made aware that Evans was going to be assigned plane guard duty that night, or at least specifically. And um, and And I gather that the other part of his defence would be, well, he should have been woken by the junior officers. Um, nevertheless, that defence was unsuccessful and he was found guilty and was reprimanded and that effectively ended his career. Uh, Lieutenant Ramsey and Lieutenant Hobson, the officer of the watch and his assistant respectively, uh, both pleaded guilty to similar charges and they were they lost a senior already in the lieutenant list in the US Navy. I don't know though what ultimately happened to their respective careers. Captain Stevenson was charged um, as well and went to court martial um, and he again for similar charges, more specifically that he should have um, uh, signalled Evans specifically with a course change and secondly that he should have ordered the engines to stern on Melbourne sooner Um, and uh, his counsel Gordon Samuels QC applied at the beginning of the court martial uh, to have the charges dismissed on the basis that um, even if well, that even if either order had been given or, or signal, I should say, and and then the stern order had been given, it would have made no difference to the outcome. But that's my understanding of what occurred and that application was successful and Captain Stevenson was uh, honourably acquitted. Um, two postscripts, if I might, in respect of that, um, Firstly, there was seems to have been speculation at the time in the press, and is also mentioned in in Joe Stevenson's book as to what the reasoning was behind the um, decision to charge Stevenson. Um, two theories being one was it was to blockade the Americans and uh, at least reduce their sense of. Um, culpability or chagrin about the whole affair. The second theory was that it was to afford Captain Stevenson an opportunity to have his name cleared and to exonerate him. Um, Just dealing with that last theory first, 
uh, one would one can pretty easily show that that could not have been the reason he was charged for two reasons. One, he he nevertheless, even though he was cleared, he was assigned a, um, a chief of staff role to a, a relatively junior officer, um, which most people in time said clearly was below his station in his career and therefore was an, an effective snub uh, to him. And he believed that to be the case and he soon resigned from the Navy. So it, it's difficult to accept that um, the, the Naval Board was seeking to afford him an opportunity to clear his name when in, um, when in fact they were seemingly um, not seeing him as having a future in the Navy. The second basis that one would tend to disagree with that theory is that in 2012, the then Defence Minister Stephen Smith wrote to Captain Stevenson and essentially admitted on behalf of the Australian government that he'd been poorly treated and that his uh, career was um, effectively um, cut short by the way he, his career uh, was treated. and one could not envisage that even you know, three, four or so decades later, um, the Australian government would be making such representations if it was, if, if it was not um, at least partly true. So therefore, it's, I think it's pretty clear um, to infer that the reason Stevenson was charged was essentially um, because of a need to keep our major ally the Americans happy and to reduce their feeling of um, embarrassment and humiliation over the, the, the whole collision. Um, the other postscript, if I might, is simply to mention that uh, many, many years later, after this, the, after the court martial, I happened to be the aide de camp to Gordon Samuels when he was the governor of New South Wales. So this is in about 1999, 2000, that period, and occasionally. Um, I would ask him about various cases that he'd been in, most of which he said he could never remember. Um, I was no doubt trying to impress him with my legal um, research skills. But the one trial he could remember was this court martial at Stevenson. It was something he really fondly remembered and took immense pride in having assisted uh, Captain Stevenson. Um, and he said that he kept in contact with Joe Stevenson afterwards and also Captain Stevenson and, and, and always offered to help them and um, and do, do anything to help salvage his reputation. So uh, for me, that was a really lovely um, connection I had with this whole this whole uh, tragedy. Louisa Sola, the sinking resulted in the deaths of 74 sailors. Can you relate in particular the, the, the great tragedy of the Sage family? So the Sages were three brothers that were serving on the Evans together. Uh, first, uh, we have Gary Sage. He was 22 years old the, the night of the collision. And then Cal, I'm sorry, uh, Greg was 21. And uh, they had served together on the previous deployment. So they had two brothers on the ship together. And then 
Kelly Joe graduates high school, Vietnam War is going on. Dad says, hey, you know, go in the Navy with your brother. Uh, Ernest kind of pushed him. And, and let me say something. Kelly Joe was your typical younger brother. You, your, your two older brothers in the Navy, he went in the Navy. And, uh, you know, the parents had to, you know, kind of sign off on the boys serving together on the same ship. Um, a lot of people like to say, oh, after the Sullivans, they never did that. Yes, they did do that. <laughs> they were never able to stop brothers from trying to serve together. Um, not even in World War II on uh, the USS Indianapolis, for example, twin brothers from Cincinnati, Ohio, 19-year-old twin brothers were killed. And now the uh, the Sullivan brothers, they died, you know, what, three or four years prior to that. And they say, oh, the Navy banned that. They never did. Well, they tried to. Public relations-wise, they tried to. But if you imagine an aircraft carrier with, you know, 1,000, 2,000 people, uh, the smaller carriers back then, and, you know, you, you have five Smiths. And you don't know if they're brothers. And then it becomes a logistical nightmare in the middle of a war when you're like, why are you here with your brother? I mean, things happen. But the Evans, I mean, they, they knew that the, the brothers were going to be together. Um, now, these uh, brothers, they grew up in Niobrara, Nebraska, farm country, USA, middle of nowhere town. The Sage family didn't even have a phone in their house. Um, white frame farmhouse on a hill. Uh, it just... Uh, iconic American experience of growing up on a farm. Um, they had a, they had a, 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 what I think is a beautiful life. Um, I did meet their mother 12 days before she died. I went to Niobrara to sit and talk with her and interview her. And uh, I talked to her about raising boys. I had two children myself, um, two boys. They're the same age difference that uh, Gary and, and Greg were. So, and my boys were three years old and one year old when I started working on this book. And uh, so I asked her a lot of questions about raising them, what they were like. And they were just typical boys, um, you know, that uh, that roughness with that tenderness. Uh, Greg was married, the middle brother. He had, a, he had, wife had just had a baby. So Greg Allen Jr. was one years old. Um, Kelly Joe had just celebrated his 19th birthday on the Evans on May 29th. Um, and uh, and then this happened, and they how they found out um, they were you know uh, Eunice, typical farmer's wife, was inside cooking. Um, Ernest had come in from doing farm chores, washed his hands, put on Walter Cronkite. There was also a, there's a little brother here. He was uh, six years old at the time. Um, his name is Doug, and I talk to him once a week, uh, you know, jumping on the bed, doing whatever his mom told him not to do. Um, he did a lot of things for attention and everything. And Walter Cronkite at the end of the newscast said, the USS Frankie Evans has just collided in the South China Sea. You know, with the time difference, this was the middle of the night in the South China Sea. This was right, right around dinner time. And um, I, I, I did pull that newscast. I did see it. Uh, I think um, Ernest went into a, a shock initially, and he was repeating, you know, what was the name of the ship, and what was this, what was this. And again, they didn't have a phone. So he drives into town, which was a couple miles away. They were in the way in the country. He drives into the small town of Niobrara, going berserk because something has happened to his son's ship, and he doesn't know. Well, of course, they, they find out in the coming days. Um, I, I want to say this. 
forever change that town and the family. Um, I have no idea how Eunice bounced back after that. Uh, I don't know. As a mother, I can't even imagine it. I get very emotional when I talk about it. Um, you know, she, she, of course, she still had to raise Doug, and I think she did the best she could, and I think she really loved him, her, her last son. And I think Ernest punished himself throughout his life. He feels like it was his fault for pushing his boys to join the Navy. Um, it's just all around a very sad tale. But the USS Frankie Evans Association, uh, the veterans that get together once a year, I mean, they really took Eunice in, and Eunice in the 1990s started calling the association, all these old veterans, you know, my boys, and they treated her like a mother, and, and, and even some Australians would drive to Niobrara, which is the middle of nowhere. If you're going to Niobrara, you have to fly into Omaha and drive three hours on a straight, flat road, and maybe you think you're going the right way because there are no signs, and people treated her with, uh, with utmost respect, and I think that helped heal her a little bit. Um, and I think, uh, I think Doug, Doug goes to the reunions and Doug has the, his, you know, he has people that he can call and rely on. And it's just been, it's, it, to this day, it has been a hard life for Doug. Um, he's in his fifties now. So, um, that's their, that's their story. And American Boys tells the story of their lives, um, and frames it around the Vietnam War, what was going on and how they ended up together and the aftermath. I think it's one of the most special parts of my book was how I brought these families out. Now, you do know there was a father and son aboard Chief Riley and his son, Larry, did not survive either. And this story, my book also tells the story of that family, um, which is, a you know, another tragedy um, in itself. But again, on the other hand, it, it becomes a beautiful story when, when you see people coming together and saying, you know, you're not alone and... Um, and we're here for you. And so it, it, in many ways, uh, a lot of people did reach out to the Sage family and to this day. Well, thank you for relating that, Louise. I mean, it's a unfathomable tragedy to lose children at any rate, but to lose three sons in, in one collision is, is uh, well, it's unfathomable. Well, Simon, to turn to a slightly more positive note, of course, in these tragic events, there's often exploits of bravery and conspicuous conduct. Could you highlight some of those and any official recognition that followed? Certainly. Um, as you say, it was a, a very, very tragic event, but uh, the actual rescue operation that resulted immediately thereafter was remarkable when you think about it. Um, all the survivors were back on board Melbourne within 32 minutes of the collision, so uh, that's, uh, that's quite an achievement, and uh, Errol's touched on some of that. But there were many uh, heroic acts, um, um, Beryl has mentioned Lieutenant Bob Burns, uh, who died from the quarterdeck and rescued several sailors uh, in the water. I thought I'd just mention uh, engineer mechanic Wayne Baldwin, who, after uh, going to his emergency station, was detailed off to go down to the quarterdeck to assist uh, Evans sailors who were climbing up to the quarterdeck by a scrambling net from Evans' stern half that was secured alongside. Uh, he did that, but, but he also noticed that many uh, of the Evans sailors were struggling to climb, so he himself went down the net to the bottom and assisted uh, uh, sailors going up. But then he was told about um, uh, one sailor who was trapped down below who was injured. Uh, so without uh, any further direction, he went, grabbed a torch from somewhere, went into the darkened ship, went right down to the engineering spaces and did a search by himself. 
uh, found this injured sailor who was very badly burned and was able to drag him out back up to the um, upper deck and then up the nets and uh, away for treatment. When he got to the upper deck of uh, uh, Evans, he again heard of another sailor who was trapped in the uh, after-machinery spaces, which were flooding at the time. Uh, so he again went down um, by himself, uh, found this uh, very badly injured sailor in the after-machinery space, um, brought him back up to the deck, and not only did he get him up the scrambling net, but he also escorted him to the Melbourne's wardroom, uh, where the um, ship's medical emergency teams were, uh, and he himself uh, administered uh, first aid initially until a, a medical officer took over. And for that uh, activity, he received accommodation uh, for brave conduct. But all in all, uh, there were uh, were quite a few awards given, and I won't go into any others in in, in uh, great detail because of time. But eight one seven did receive eight one seven squadron received a. Meritorious, meritorious unit accommodation for its outstanding efforts in, in contributing to the rescue of 38 survivors uh, um, in the water. Uh, in addition, there were five specific individual medals, uh, a George Medal to Lieutenant Burns I mentioned, one MBE or member of the British Empire for chivalry, one Air Force Cross to a, a pilot uh, for his gallantry while flying, and two British Empire me- medals for uh, meritorious service. In addition, the Australian Naval Board awarded 15 commendations for gallantry. So um, there were many, many heroic efforts in that uh, initial half an hour of the rescue and then the subsequent uh, 15 hours of continued search uh, for survivors. Well, to conclude, can I ask each of you for your final thoughts about the Melbourne Frankie Evans collision and its legacy? First, Errol. So, Errol, any final observations? Yes, Um, My final observations on on the whole incident was that it is my firm opinion, and it was backed up, that the Melbourne was completely in the clear. It was the fault of the American destroyer getting in our way, and uh, Captain J.P. Stevens had done the very best he could. He was a good captain. Uh, and uh, he, say, so looked after uh, the crew and did whatever he, he could for the benefit. He, he was, as far as I was concerned, he was badly treated by... There was too much emphasis, I think, of on, on American... Australian relations at the higher level, and that we mustn't upset the Americans. And uh, well, that was bound up by the fact that the captain of the American ship was asleep in his bunker when the accident collision occurred, whereas that would be unheard of in the Australian uh, or the British Navy, in the Australian Navy, is it? If there's anything vital going on, the captain of the ship is always on the bridge, as our captain was. And, uh, yeah, as far as I was concerned, it's rather like uh, you're at the, parked at the, traffic, at the traffic lights and you get the green signal and you go through and somebody jumps the red light and hits you. And who's at fault? It's the real bloke that broke the red light and uh, 
American ship should never have turned the way it did and got in our way. Louisa Solar, any final thoughts from you? I think um, the way I wrote American Boys was that this was a story of human tragedy and human, human error and and I describe it as such and I'm all backed everything by interviews and research and everything. I, I really feel, and I say this all the time because I've been to many Frankie Evans reunions, I've been to a lot of people, and whenever this he shouldn't have turned, he turned, and, and I believe, I agree with what was just said, um, but there's a part of me that says, you know what, um, nobody meant for this to happen, nobody wanted it to happen, I think it just, it happened through, uh, and I describe in the book all the little pieces of human error and circumstances that helped bring, usher this in. And, and certainly was. It was the American's fault. This was, this was the American ship's fault. Um, but at the same time, I have in front of me a picture of, of Macklemore at the last Frankie Evans reunion in June at the 50th anniversary, which was many Australians there. I'm friends with several of them. Um, I met the photographer who was uh, shooting photos on board the Kearsarge, uh, the American um, aircraft carrier that took the the general, the survivors from the Melbourne to the, to, to took them on their ship. And this photographer was able to get a picture of Macklemore as he was right after he was brought aboard. And his, I, I, I just, it isn't a, a proud moment. I mean, it's a sad picture. And I, and I think that this is just a, a horrible thing that happened. And I think you have to remember that nobody, this is nobody's intention for this to happen. Um, and the way things were handled were yeah, I definitely feel like Australian-U.S. relations were paramount to uh, the, you know, what really should have transpired, um, and that is politics 101. They always casualties there, um, but I, I just, I like to look at this from the standpoint of a, of a, of a, of a human tragedy, and then there are many of them. Uh, there are a lot of incidents that happen, tragedies where there were holes, or somebody didn't notice something, or somebody should have spoke out and said something, and this, this story has that all in it. We've been there. Um, but that's, that's all I want to say. Is that you have to remember that we're dealing with human beings, and we are not perfect. Indeed. And Simon Cullen, any final thoughts from you? Um, a couple. Um, Louise mentioned earlier about the impact on the United States Navy through the Zumwalt era, and I think that uh, is certainly very true in terms of reprofessionalising US Navy. But there were two other impacts, I think, for the Australian Navy. Uh, the first was a uh, doubling down, so to speak, I think, during the 1970s on precision manoeuvre at sea. That was really, really um, drummed into us, and I was there a decade later. Um, very, very precise manoeuvring in, in uh, individual ships as part of formations was the first one. But the second one, I think, was um, uh, ir irrespective of the fact that in the Evans collision, Melbourne was not at fault, there was a loss of public confidence in the Navy. Uh, that was uh, built a bit upon uh, the jinx ship line in, in the media. And I think the political class also lost a bit of confidence in the Navy. And so when it did come to the decision to replace the carrier in the in the early 1980s, when Melbourne did commission in 83, while it was not the prime reason, I think there was um, some uh, legacy effect 
of those two collisions in the decision not to replace Melbourne and, and not acquire another carrier. And finally, Matthew Visper, any final thoughts from you? Uh, yeah, just two. And the first thing to touch on the, the, the personal tragedy that Louise has, has, has so well uh, captured in what she has said. And in, in my experience, and I've acted in a number of boards of inquiry, both as council assisting and act, representing families, uh, where there's been um, members killed, that 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 families have a real nose for what is fair and just in the in the post tragedy inquiries, and if they have if the family sense that the truth is not coming out, or there's been a smoke screen, or um, a bit of a cover up, the the, the families quickly pick it and they're aghast and often their grief can be compounded if if those feelings are allowed to bubble along. And I I wonder whether from the American from the American point of view for the survivors and also the families of the of the sailors who were killed, whether the, the, their grief from from this tragedy may have been compounded by the fact that the inquiries seem to be going off on a bit of a tangent and it seemed to be not trying to solve the problem of how this happened and trying to prevent it happening again. Um, rather, almost as if it was a bit of a witch hunt to try and find some basis upon which to also blame the Australians. And I just wonder whether that may have just been a, a compounding factor in their grief. I know that's uh, speculative on my part, but my my sense and my experience tells me that might have been a factor. The second observation is simply from more from a legal point of view, and that is um, often with setting up boards of inquiry and the terms of reference for inquiries, if, if, if you rush in and you don't stop and think through your terms of reference and war game them, for instance, for instance yeah, yes, you might, you might save a few days and you might get things underway a little bit more expeditiously but in the long run you can really have some problems and I touched on them earlier you know the problems with the the impression that the president was not um, uh, impartial and also the different regulations the different treatment of the um, of the US as opposed to Australian officers Um, but then I think there was also a fourth aspect of it which I'll briefly touch on and that is because it started so quickly, um, the, 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 the open sessions, there seemed to then have been a lot of closed sessions because the board was still kind of kept trying to catch up with what had happened. And, and, and so a lot of times, public members of the public were kept out of these closed sessions. And that also fueled this sense that there's a bit of a cover-up or some conspiracy going on. So I think if they had just paused, taken a little bit longer to get settled out settle down um, the regulations and how the process was to occur and perhaps let some more fact-finding be uh, accomplished in the short term. In the long run, a lot of the the sense of lingering conspiracy and that it wasn't a a full and frank inquiry, those concerns may have been dampened or perhaps even avoided. So they're my thoughts. 
Well, thank you all for those final thoughts, and sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Errol Stevens, Louisa Solar, Simon Cullen and Matthew Vesper. And thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Bye for now.